0: Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Psalm 72. Psalm 72 reads in the subheading that it's a Psalm of Solomon, one of only two of the Psalms that's so indicated, the other being Psalm 127, I think. Psalm of Solomon, and interesting, this is the end of Book 2 of the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, as verse 20 reminds us. So commentators have fought long and hard over the the, uh, interpretation, if this is a Psalm of Solomon, how can be this included as the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, uh, before they're ended? We'll speak of that presently, but hear the word. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy. He will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall flourish, and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river, be Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. And he shall live, and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And Blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Thus far we read the Word of God. This Psalm will be the meditation tonight as we continue through the Psalms. I do want to start with this title, There's No Conflict Here. That this is a song of a, a Psalm of Solomon, and part of the prayers of David needs not be um, interpreted as conflicting. It's simply that uh, somehow David and Solomon collaborated, I would say, to write this psalm and so that it's properly Solomon's and properly David's together. There is no uh, need to fret about this apparent contradiction. Let us just simply rest in the fact that this is the psalm of God. And it's important to know that the subject, obviously, of this psalm is, is the royal kingdom of the king, the king and his judgments, the king and his rule, and the king and his domain and dominion so glorious is the subject of this psalm. In fact, it's all about Jesus. It's about the reign of Messiah. It's a messianic psalm in that sense, like unto other parts of the scripture that speak of the great and wide and everlasting dominion of the Son of God incarnate who has given the uh, Judgments of God to rule in the earth and who shows mercy to save his people. There's something here for us always, especially when it's the case that it looks contrary, does this situation in our society, to the very truth of this psalm that the king is reigning. And we need to be comforted and reassured in the fact of the truth of the Bible, the truth of God's counsel, the truth of the gospel of the Son. And is being king and is having a kingdom. And let us not listen at all to the philosophies of men and their hopes and fears. May we not live by them and may we not die by them. We have a word of God here, the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. So let's consider this too, so that we might celebrate, as the psalmist does at the end Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And the the sermon is entitled, therefore, The Celebration of the King and His Kingdom. We consider, first of all, that this is a great king and there's a great thing that he does in the earth. Secondly, we want to consider the great thing coming to pass in a great way. And there we might be surprised. And finally, we want to consider that great celebration. and Go home, beloved, with joy and with gladness Because the king, the king is coming and he reigns supreme. There's a king here and according to the history, this is the king who is a king's son. This can only be Solomon who is the son of David, the king David, and to whom is given the judgments. He is the king now and that is on front and center. There is, in fact, a prayer that uh, was inspired in 2 Samuel 7, which speaks of the promise to David that in his son there would be the reign, the everlasting reign of David and the kingdom that is perpetuated by this son. Well, that's Solomon. In fact, when we read here of uh, a call to give the king your judgments, O God, your righteousness to the king's son, we're reminded of the prayer that Solomon made, when he was asked of God what he wanted if he was going to be the king and he prayed for wisdom to rule this great people the people of God and so it was given to him and he was given great wisdom and his was a king of the kingdom of peace that's something that's exalted here abundance of peace is the way of this kingdom verse 7 there's a flourishing there is only mention, I believe, of one war that Solomon ever had to fight in his reign. And so you have this prosperity and this worldwide expansion. and You have other kings coming to give tribute to him. It's all there in the Bible, the history of Solomon, the history of the great exaltation of the type or the symbol of the Messiah who would come. And on this Messiah, we do need to focus because... The Bible here is speaking in history, the typical symbolic history of Israel and her kings and her kingdoms, of Jesus and his kingdom. The king here, let's go straight to it, is Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of righteousness, not just the son of David by flesh and blood and by legal right but he's the son of Adam and the son of Abraham that is appointed by God to be such a son and a king in Israel. He, in fact, is the eternal son of God, the eternal and the natural son of God, as our catechism describes him, who is divine and to whom is given no judgment because he is the wise and righteous divine judge. But here he's... He's spoken of is Jesus the Son, the eternal Son, in His messianic office. He's the one who's appointed to be given judgments for His coming down to the earth. He's appointed to be uh, given the opportunity to serve God on the earth in His humiliation and to learn obedience by the things that He suffers in this humiliation so that He might be this perfect substitute for sinners. He is this one who is the eternal king with God in all of his glory as the Son, but who in his human nature is also the king of our salvation and who after his humiliation is exalted. He lives so that he ascends to the right hand of God. And when Jesus so ascends, you remember from the Gospels, to him all power and authority is given exactly because he's the king. He is, in fact, the great king of our salvation. This kingdom of his is described here as being heavenly. That is, there are things here that can only be attributed to that kingdom that is established, that is heavenly, that was not ever fulfilled perfectly or exhaustively on earth, but must be fulfilled and perfectly and exhaustively in heaven. Reminded of the fact in other places that speak clearly of heaven, of the prophecy of Isaiah. Here I'll read just the first five verses or so of that. It speaks clearly of the day of the Lord. Then shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. that's David's son, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now that is just the first verses of Isaiah 11. But going after that comes this, which is clearly a picture of heaven. The wolf also shall lie down, shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them, and so on. And then the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, but the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. All this is clearly the forecast of the prophecy of heaven and it's brought out here in Psalm 72 in different ways. For example... The righteousness of Jesus, judging. He has given judgments and righteousness as the king's son, God's son, Solomon's true son, or David's true son, who judges the people with righteousness and the poor with justice. Righteousness defines his rule. Reminded of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, 6, and 7. There's the prophecy of one children whose name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The next verse reads, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. There he is in his office, righteously ruling the people of God. Besides that, he delivers the needy when he cries. Verse 12, The poor also in him who has no helper. He spares the poor and the needy and will save the souls of the needy. He will redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Now that, beloved describes two things of the rule of Messiah and the kingdom of Messiah. It is righteous and it is merciful. And there is righteousness that defines his rule. He rules according to the law of God. What is right, he does by the people. But he also shows mercy. Now this we know is fulfilled in Jesus, made unto us righteousness, the Lord of mercy, full of mercy, to the poor in spirit and perfectly together meshed our righteousness and mercy on the cross of Calvary. There is no one who can righteously rule and merciful rule together other than Jesus so perfectly to satisfy God's own justice and righteousness and to be merciful enough to save poor sinners. And that is what is described here, saving the souls of the needy by this righteousness and mercy, not just giving opulence, that's a big word for wealth, not just causing a dominion from sea to sea so that we have a lot of natural resources, but the salvation of the people of God uh, is here set forth as a reason why the Lord God of Israel needs to be blessed and praised by this people. And this revealed in Jesus Christ. The great messianic kingdom is pictured here, and it's pictured here as enduring. Nothing happened like this in Solomon's day. In fact, after Solomon, there was a great decline, and the gold of Solomon became the brass of Rehoboam. So easily did the gold turn into brass in five years or so. Solomon himself was far from perfect. His kingdom was only typical of the things that Jesus would accomplish. The kingdom of his did not only not endure, but it wasn't as wide as is described here. Dominion from sea to sea, the river to the ends of the earth, not at all in Solomon's reign. There were indeed kings of Tarshish and other isles, and kings of Sheba and Seba who offered gifts, but It wasn't ever said that all nations served Solomon, but all nations shall serve Jesus, to be sure. And when Jesus comes again, we know what the line is. At his name, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when the Gentiles are gathered in, we know that this is the kingdoms of our world becoming the kingdoms of our Lord There is in the saving of Gentiles, the ingathering from all the nations to the Jews and coming to Mount Zion with all believers, this amazing universality, a whole world that's saved, that becomes a dominion of the people of God and of the God of the people in Jesus Christ. So here's the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven it's called in the New Testament, that Jesus says has come. And I want to talk about this a little bit. The nature of the kingdom is established. It's the kingdom of King Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a spiritual kingdom in essence. And the righteousness that he reigns by and the mercy that he shows is for the salvation of the people of God and their blessedness. And I do want to remind you The blessedness of this kingdom is described here necessarily in earthly terms, according to the resources of the land, gold and silver, according to the ecology even, mountains and hills being involved in this salvation and the bringing of peace and and all of that, and according to social things like abundance of peace, which would be peace between nations, and the duration of the kingdom is described in these earthly terms, a sun and moon, as long as they endure, uh, there shall be this kingdom, and as long as the moon endures, there shall be abundance of peace, but we are to look beyond that. We are to look way beyond the earth, and these things are just presented as symbolic of the reality of the, the kingdom's blessings that we know even in part now, and which shall be ours in heaven Oh, beloved, many go astray here. They want to revisit the whole typology and imagine that a kingdom, say, of Jesus on this earth will be reestablished and there will be new sacrifices and Jews and Gentiles, in fact, will be able to see things and there'll be gold like this and there'll be health and wealth and there will be no disease and all of this. Oh, beloved... There is much greater in store for us than anything that this world can give. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2.9 And the kingdom comes not with observation. The kingdom comes and it's not of this world. Otherwise, Jesus would fight. It's far greater than gold and silver. It's far greater than earthly peace. Is the abundance of peace, the reconciling God, reconciling sinners to himself and a people to themselves. This is the great thing. We don't want to miss it either. We don't want to miss it by looking for something earthly. So we have to go to the way of the cross that Jesus himself determined with God his Father in the communion of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be the way. It's The way we're going to get things done on earth that God wants done. It's the way we're going to establish a kingdom, it's the way of blood. As I've said before at this pulpit, the, the glory of Christianity is the glory of the blood. And it's the glory that is inglorious, therefore. No one wants the glory in blood. Not blood shed of other kings, but the blood of the Son of God. But we need to. We need to preach Christ crucified, as Paul said, and and to know Him and be determined in the congregation to know nothing else than Christ crucified by our being peacemakers, by our dwelling with one another, by our praying for one another, by our being thankful for one another, praying for the peace of Zion, this church needs so to pray. And then we show just how great Jesus is in our hearts. That he comes into our hearts after he comes into this world and dies for us and sends his spirit from heaven so that the greatest and most infernal, hellish territory is conquered. That's your heart, and that's my heart. That's the great thing. Jesus conquers hearts. He just doesn't give you the ability to write a sonata to sing a solo, to run a race. God doesn't delight in the legs of a man. That's the word of God. God delights in hearts being brought to him which are now subject to his son, which no more yield to the flesh, no more yield to their own private opinions or anyone else's, even a majority of people but they're ruled over by the king. And they're made glad subjects, children of God subjects, who love to please God and who glory in the things of heaven and who don't seek the things below but the things above where Jesus is at the right hand of God. Their whole life is following that great king wherever he leads. Is that your life, beloved? See, we can talk all we want about how there's this great coming to pass of the kingdom and it's going to be this day or it's going to be that day and there's going to be signs of his coming. But it's all about this Jesus and his blood. It's all about this Jesus and his blood somehow getting to me and getting to you and informing you, enlightening your mind, taking over that territory too. used to be that that was filled with all the stuff of the world. Jesus comes and he re-informs you. And he re-informs how you think, therefore, and and what you're going to say and and what you're going to do because his heart is also in his hand, your heart is also in his hands. And that's the wonderful thing about being saved. You're saved to be ruled, and his rule is good. So let's not buck at his rule, beloved. Let's not protest when he rules us, when he leads us a certain way and, and we say, oh, I don't know if I want to go that way. I don't know. Uh, there's a better job over here. I might have to work on the Lord's Day or I might be around a bunch of creeps and that might tempt me, but it's, it would be better pay. And Jesus is leading over here. And He's saying, you be content. I have great things in store for you there. These are decisions. Well, there's women, dime a dozen. Men, a dime for three dozen. Whatever. Flesh is cheap, beloved, very cheap. Hearts are expensive. The souls of the people of God for whom he dies are precious in his sight. Verse 14. He redeems those from oppression and violence, and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Their souls are precious. Your soul is precious. Your blood is precious. So he dies for you. And he wants you now not to be ruled by anything but him. He comes, and he comes not approximately just to Christianize things as post-millennials believe. They believe there's going to be a gradual Christianization of the world and then it's going to come. But there's nothing of that here. When the kingdom comes, it's, it's, it's this glorious thing, not partially glory. See, in the post-millennial view, that means after a thousand years or so of gradual Transformation of society and increase of goodness among men. Jesus will come. Even though there's unconverted people at this time, he'll come and, and he'll dwell among them and so on. That's not how the Bible is describing things here. It's describing a complete salvation of the poor and the needy and a complete redemption. And a complete execution of righteousness, and there's nothing almost here or approximate. There's nothing political here either. You know, the history of the church has been described as ups and downs, to be sure. But we know it's God's story; He's leading His church. But we can say that one of the lowest points of the Church of Jesus Christ was when? When do you think? You think it was a time of the Reformation? and the Dark Ages, and Rome had taken over. Well, actually, it was before that, and I I concur with this opinion of historians and theologians. It was when in the 4th century, Christianity became legal by political decree. Constantine, the emperor of the 4th century, was converted. Supposedly saw a vision of Christ crucified and a banner in his army, and, and he vowed to when the, uh, if he won the battle, he'd, he'd yield to Christ. And well, he won the battle, he yielded to Christ. And, and then he made Christianity not only legal, but the state religion. Before that, it was antagonistic to Christianity, it was more a pluralistic society. But now it's for Christianity. The theologians and historians, and yours truly, would agree that this was disaster for the church. Because Christianity then became easy. And in fact, taken into Christianity and its worship were all of the the, the trappings of all of the other religions to accommodate them and to make for a peaceful kingdom, a peaceful religion in Rome, in the Roman Empire, so that the great crown rights of Jesus would be exalted. However, they missed the cross and they missed righteousness and the things that make for a people that is not accepted in this world and by this world and never will be. So when politics mingled with Christianity and theology, it was disaster for the church, even when it became easy to be a Christian, especially then. And I wonder sometimes even in our society where the heat is increasingly on against us, If we have it so easy here, and it makes it hard to be a Christian. If all who will live godly will suffer persecution, what does that say of us? How can we be among the all who will live godly? I tell you, I'm... I'm the guy who goes back to his tent and says, Moses, you deal with this God who's a fire. I can't take it. I'm the guy whose nature is, I'll follow you, Jesus, anywhere you lead, but I hope I don't have to bear a cross. I don't like conflict. And the Bible says, comfort ye the people of God, and God says at the same time, discomfort the comfortable. Do you know that's the calling of a minister? The greatest calling. Not just comfort them, but make them uncomfortable. Yeah, it's true. If not, I'm just a politician, not a prophet. You don't want that in the congregation. You don't want that. You want a man from heaven? You want a man who admits his his faults and his shortcomings and his sin and his lack of all insight in the world as, as if wisdom died with him? No way. But a man of God's choosing, this is what you receive. This is what Timothy was and Paul was and everyone who followed Jesus was. But the fact is, the kingdom comes in the way of the blood, in the way of God's people being converted, and in the way of that church, being church. Keys of the kingdom are given to the elders of Christ. We realize that? That's what Matthew 18 is. It's open is the kingdom to to believers and shut to unbelievers. People walk in sin, they have no place in the kingdom. They show that... They're not saved by God, or if they are, they're walking so belligerently that that they're they're hurting themselves and others. There needs to be the keys of the kingdom. And then there's this opening to believers and so on. And and besides that, there's the preaching of the gospel, of course. I say besides, actually, prior to that, there's the preaching of the word of God. Remember the trumpet from heaven, the, the mount of God? That's what is happening here, you know, the trumpet sounds. This is how the kingdom comes and this is how there's this prophecy in this book in Psalm 72 that has weight and power. This is the word of God. You note here these are all statements except for two that are statements of fact of what is and what shall be. The first not statement of a fact is a prayer. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. The last, <clears throat> um, verse, uh, verse 19 of the, in the body of the psalm, is also a prayer. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. But in between that, it is this way, and it is this way, and it shall be this way. That's because God is saying so. He will judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people, the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He'll save the children of the needy. He'll break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. On and on. These are facts. Jesus will be king He will be exalted to the right hand of God. He will come again. There will be heaven. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we preach. And in the way of that proclamation, it comes to pass. And lo and behold, sinners are saved and brought into the kingdom. And those in the kingdom are blessed. And they need not fear because the king is their protection and their children's protection. A great thing. And we pray. We pray even for the king in answer to prayers. Thy kingdom come. Jesus taught us to pray that. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom comes in this remarkable way. Give the king your judgments, O God, almost as if we have a say in the appointment of the king and the qualification of the king. Hard to explain that. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This is praying the kingdom to come to pass. And note here in verse 15, speaking of the exaltation of Jesus, he will live, and there will be this tribute given him, the gold of Sheba, so on. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. We pray for this king Now, that's hard to figure out. How do we, and why would we need to pray for Jesus? He's praying for us. But somehow we're praying that his kingdom would come. That's what he tells us to do. And this is all I can say about that. Pray. Preach and pray and practice Christianity. And this is how God himself executes his will and causes his kingdom to come. And it will come. That means... We ought to be celebrating a future reality in all of its fullness, present reality since he's come, and the great prospect of blessing and praise to God. Blessed be the Lord God of the God of Israel who only does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory, starting with me, Starting with you, celebrate that King, beloved, and that kingdom. Amen and amen. Our Father, we pray that you would bless us with celebratory hearts, joy, gladness, turning from ourselves our problems, even our successes, to you. Help us to be enthralled with the gospel truth of the king and his kingdom. Never wearying of the work that we're called to do as people of God, praying and preaching and hearing and practicing Christianity, though it be a cross that we must bear. Lord, bless this church with zeal the zeal of the house of the Lord, the zeal of being agents of peace and wise and righteous and merciful. Give this congregation to thrive together. Keep us from anything that would overrule our seeking to be yours. May we put down evil in our own hearts. And may we, Lord, call sinners to repentance and the repentant to sanctification. Hear our prayers and bless us together. For Jesus' sake, amen.